Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, hosted by Josh Abatoy and Tymon Klein. Our mission is to promote a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day, rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Welcome back to the American Reformer podcast. Um, Editor-in-Chief Tymon Klein here with Josh Abatoy, Executive Director. We are joined today, though, by a special guest, Jay Burden. And uh, some of you may know Jay, uh, follow him on Twitter, have heard him on um, kind of the podcast circuit, at least in a certain um, niche area of podcasts that many of you listen to. Um, but Jay has his own podcast. I believe it's just called the Jay Burden show. Is that right, Jay? Yeah. The Jay Burden show. That's the name of my podcast twice okay. a week, roughly hour long interview show. I write under the same name on Substack. You can find me there as well, but yeah, the, the podcast is my, it's my primary gig and where you can find 90% of my work. Okay. And, um, I've seen, I've, you know, several people I know and, and then kind of out in, in Twitter world, seen people talking about Jay for a while um, since he's kind of emerged onto the the scene. Um, I think you've, you know, you've talked with Orrin McIntyre, you've talked with Alex Kashuda, other people that, that uh, our listeners would recognize. Um, and I think, you know, there's a few unique things about your approach uh, to, to some of the topics we're going to cover. But one of them is just that in the, in the new right circles, as they're generally called now, there's not a ton of uh, proud, self-identifying evangelical Protestants, you know, that are that um, love kind of their their faith and are are not itching to look, you know, not looking for a reason to swim the Tiber anytime soon. A lot of them, you know, you find that are that are Christians, uh, you know, are, are Catholics or what have you. So that that's something unique. I think you bring to the table, and we'll, we'll sometimes talk about. Um, that angle or those, uh, you know, our people, I guess we could say. So we, we definitely wanted to have you on um, because you, you know, can speak to a lot of our audience and our constituency um, and introduce them to some newer ideas that are percolating, circulating on uh, the new right, um, such as it is, as it tries to, um, you know, open up a, a new um, sort of way of analysis of what is often referred to as the regime. We can get into that topic. Josh actually has had an ongoing series on the site about it, you know, describing the regime and its functionality. Um, but I guess we just begin by by talking about, you know, what what is it to your mind um, that hinders evangelicals, Protestants generally, you can even talk about Christians generally, from really understanding how um, things, uh, specifically power functions in the modern, uh, you know, liberal West, um, you know, sometimes right under their, their noses, but it's, uh, you know, usually evangelicals probably walk around with a fairly simple, which is not to, uh, you know, denigrate them, but simple understanding of how things work. It's very straightforward. Um, but you and others, uh, you know, kind of take a more holistic approach to the way um, our society and, and uh, culture actually functions. So yeah, there's a lot there. And kind of starting at the top, which is how evangelicals, conservative Americans view power in politics is incorrect. It's sort of a, a holdover from a previous social order. So I talk a lot about my show about civic religion. And what I mean when I say that is not literally what the Romans would have meant by civic religion, which is, you know, you have to take a pinch of uh, incense and burn it before the, you know, the, the deceased emperor or something like that. But the idea that every civilization has sort of a faith claim at its heart. And what we're seeing in America is a previous one, which was sort of instituted in the, the post-war years, is being kind of subverted and taken over by something else. And that previous social order was, was sort of amenable to Christians. Like it was very easy for Christians to go along with that. You know, when we think of kind of how our parents and how our grandparents would talk about, you know, the American founding fathers, the kind of myths of what it meant to be an American, that was something that was easy to mesh with, uh, easy to mesh with sincere Christianity. It didn't require a huge stretch. And what we're seeing is, is that old civic religion is being torn down and replaced by something new that is explicitly hostile to Christianity, 
the way that Christians relate to the state is very different. You know, they are no longer in the majority. They are no longer kind of a favored group of power. They're essentially a, a minority group. And this is something that, you know, an author that I have had a falling out with, but still consider his work to be useful, Rod Dreher, is really good at talking about essentially the idea that, you know, conservative Christians, small O Orthodox believers are a minority group and essentially have to start acting like that. So there are several things buried in that, which is one, the way that, you know, many of us were taught about politics, the kind of public school civics class is at best outdated. You know, that might've been how things worked a while ago, but it's certainly not how things work now. And if you're still operating under those assumptions, it's like Charlie Brown in the football. You know, you're basically, you run up expecting the person holding the football to do what they're supposed to do and hold it for you so you can kick it. And every single time they pull it out in front of you and you land on your back. And at a certain point, you can't really blame someone for trying that once. Probably can't blame them for trying it twice. But at the third time, when you've been duped by playing according to old rules, it's just, it's no longer productive. And there's this idea that you see in conservative circles. It's like, oh, well, we care about the rules. That makes us good and that makes us noble. And there's certainly something honorable about playing the game well. But if you're playing against an opponent who is very clear about the fact that they dislike you, they hate your beliefs, they hate the type of person that you are, and they are not going to play the game fairly, well, you're not, you're not doing yourself, you're not doing your family, you're not doing your posterity any favors by basically acting the mark, by playing the fool. And so I think that in the bigger sense of that, you know, we need to adopt a new a new posture towards politics. So a, a great friend of mine, the distributist, he's a, a major influence of mine, has this idea of red America and blue America. And he basically uses that as a stand-in for areas that are conservatives and areas that are liberal. And what he basically says is that what we need to do going forward is to have a, a red heart, so the heart of conservative America, but blue eyes. And what he means by that is basically to look at power the way that the liberal elite do, because they're winning. And being kind of a noble loser, someone who you know, plays by the old rules and loses, that's not a good thing. And so that's kind of the big picture of, you know, what I want to do, why it's important to understand politics, why it's important to understand power, because this is a serious game. And maybe in a previous era, you could kind of put your head in the sand and be fully uninterested. You know, politics wasn't that, was, it didn't affect that much in your day-to-day -day life. But, you know, to kind of paraphrase an old saying about the, about the Vietnam War, well, you may not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. And I think that especially in the post-2020 world, it's become very clear that despite how I feel, despite how you feel, uh, the state will not leave you alone. You know, you will be made to care about politics one way or another. And so to me, that's kind of a wake-up call and uh, just a reason to, to look at things really as honestly as we can. Yeah. A, a couple of things. I, I just want to pull some strings that uh, from what you were saying. Um Going back maybe a couple minutes at the beginning, um, you know, I think everyone feels this. It was when you were mentioning Rod Dreher and and sort of you know talking about we you know Christians need to adopt a minority consciousness. Uh, Aaron Wren will talk about you know our our political posture should be that of an insurgency because that's that's our status. Now this may be curious to people or it may not be intuitive to people, even if they're already starting to feel that they're embattled because at least statistically, they're not a minority, right? Christians are not a minority yet in, in America. It's still declining. It's actually kind of a white pill that there's, you know, over 60% of the people still identify as some kind of Christian. Um, but really what we're, what we're kind of talking about here, you can describe it the way you want, is you're a minority in the sense of cultural predominance, uh, which is to say power and influence. You're not preferred by the existing structures anymore, the procedure, the rules, as you were saying. And you're also not, um, you know, I'm, I'm reading this book called A White Protestant Nation. It's actually from 2008. So it's really interesting because there's no Trump yet in it. And it's hard to find a book on these things. It doesn't freak out about Trump. Um, 
And, you know, it was talking about in the in the 1920s when modern conservatism arose, quote unquote, I mean, the, they have all the cultural levels, levers of power at their disposal. You know, they're able to censor what they want. They can they basically produce what is uh, cool, for lack of a better word, or acceptable. Um, they, they set the parameters of conformity and we no longer have that power. And so whoever has that does not have that power is for all intents and purposes, the minority, even if we could say it's a majority minority. Is that, is that fair to characterization of what you're talking about? Well, it's also why I made the distinction of being conservative or orthodox, because Mm -hmm. I don't mean to engage in either, you know, the no true Scotsman fallacy or, you know, kind of, peering into the hearts of men and basically saying who's saved and who's not. But I think it is fair to make a material difference between, uh, you know, certain, certain groups like, you know, like, and I'm going to try and not use like explicit demographic terms here, but groups that are nominally Christian, but are still clients of the regime, you know, mm-hmm. who will support the state on issues like abortion, you know, mass migration, you know, the, and so don't get me wrong, those people might individually have, you know, a, a close relationship with God. But from a from a big picture conversation, those people are not our group. You know, mm-hmm. they, they have a different relationship to power. And so when I speak of, you know, evangelicals, they, they the number on that is significantly lower. You know, and obviously we can maybe extend that group a little bit more to kind of conservative Catholics, although they have a their own kind of different relationship to power. They have a different elite structure than we do. Uh, maybe that's why I, I, I framed it. I framed mm-hmm. it that way. But anyway, that's more of an aside than anything else. Right. Let's- well, and and one marker of that, I mean, that might be you know high <laughs> level. It's but it's um, I it just occurred to me the other night. Uh, well, last night um, with this uh, very contested and competitive presidential race uh, for the GOP nomination. Um, you know, there's no there's no real evangelical candidate. And I don't, I mean, in my lifetime, I don't remember when that was the case. Um, even, even if the person lost, there, there was a serious evangelical candidate. There's not one. There's no evangelicals on the court. So, you know, these are, these are sort of the highest status markers, but, the, but it's not even real, what really drives the system are, are those, um, those, but it should be something that people notice of you're, you're certainly not represented in that sense um, anymore and, and used to. Um, at least since Jimmy Carter, you know, we would have somebody running around that, that at least claimed to be evangelical and, and that was considered to be a good thing. Um, Josh, go ahead, though. You're, you're yeah, yeah. There, there's uh, a couple other preliminary comments you made that I want to unpack briefly before we proceed. I'm very interested in this question of civic religion and how we periodize the changes and, and how we characterize them. So I think you said, Jay that you know we had basically there was there was a discrete period coming out of world war 2 um perhaps we can call it something like you know muscular liberalism or you know it's it's sort of like the 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 highest form it's like the francis fukuyama end of history you know tremendous optimism about multiculturalism and the ability of a society to be um sort of open to all uh you know, and and uh, and and sort of formally neutral as between various competing comprehensive viewpoints. You know that that was, I think, in many senses, the regnant uh, civic religion. And then, you know, basically, what what's happening now is that's giving way to something else. And I'm curious. I guess one, do you agree with my characterization of what the prior civic religion was? And then number two, what? Uh, how would you characterize the emerging civic religion? So, so two things there, which is one uh, buried in that description, the previous civic religion is an idea that I don't think is true, which is the, the sort of myth of neutrality. And you, you see this a lot in the kind of way that conservatives speak about the previous social order where they, they view the previous era as one where, institutions were neutral. If you actually dig into that, that's not true at all. You know, the institutions like the ATF, the uh, IRS have routinely been weaponized. I mean, even 30, 40, 50 years ago to go after the enemies of power. That's sort of just a function of how the government always works. So that's part of it. But what I do think is that we're, we're, we're seeing a transformation 
from a a regime that felt like it needed to define itself in relation to liberalism. It sort of needed to justify itself on traditional American principles, even if it didn't necessarily live up to those. It felt at least the need to say, oh, we are connected to that, to a, a, a new regime, which has basically decided to just dispense with the formality and say like, oh no, this is a new thing. And I don't necessarily enjoy the term woke because there is a stronger through line there than that that imagines. But what I think that we're seeing is kind of a the even the idea that you know our modern regime is connected to America, that the empire of America is connected to the Republic of America, I think that that's just been done away with. You know, that there's not even a pretense needed. You know, we don't we've already gotten rid of, shall we say, the most objectionable American cultural heroes. And we're moving on to the ones that, you know, 50 years ago would have been kind of the highest saints of American civic religion, Washington, Jefferson, men like them, uh, very, very quickly. And, you know, you notice this, that the old symbols are being replaced, you know, pretty much anywhere they find them. Uh, If you look at kind of new runs of quarters, you know, new runs of currency, we're replacing, you know, men who were symbolic of that old regime with effectively just random regime clients, you know, people who meet certain demographic, you know, descriptors. And so when I look at this new regime, essentially what we're seeing is uh, runaway, runaway patronage. So one of the ways that I like to characterize politics more generally is this, this mechanism of, of patronage. And patronage is this idea that all politics is a quid pro quo, this for that. And obviously in the Roman context, this was very naked on its face. You know, uh, vote for me and I'll give you free food. You know, vote for me and I'll pay, I'll pay for you. I'll give you a good job. And albeit, you know, we've, we've kind of gone away from, in some cases, the very direct, you know, version of that. Like it's kind of illegal, at least it was, depending on how you look at it, to say, vote for me and I'll give you a bunch of free money. But essentially, all we've done is kind of hide that fact. That's really all the politics is. And what you see is that many of these kind of patronage operations, you know, regime clients like the, you know, uh, LGBTQ people, you know, uh, immigrants, certain, you know, minority groups are being given more and more privileges in exchange for their continued support. But that is sort of that drag to the system is sort of it's sort of creating a feedback loop, right? It is it is reducing the ability of the government to efficiently operate. And so I think what we're seeing with this transition is before that kind of patronage network was something that was a necessary evil, but it would be kind of tactically, it would be, it would be put in, it would be put back in the box when it needed to. You know, like, okay, like we may say like we hate Christians, you know, we may go on and on all through the 90s about how these, you know, oh, excuse me, these Christian groups are dangerous, but you know, 9-11 happens and it's rah, 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 you know, flag and country. And we can put that system away. Whereas in this kind of current civic religion, that that patronage has taken over the whole thing. And so I do see there being a difference between the two. Sorry, maybe that's a a little bit of me rambling, but do you do you sort of get what I'm getting at there? Yeah, totally. And and um, you know, I, I think my my question, no, that getting to the patronage concept is important. Um, I, I think there's two different things going on here, the, the civic religion and then some of the <clears throat> sort of the hard rules of, of politics and speaking descriptively of um, how the, you know, how the new regime, um, you know, gains friends for itself, essentially. But I, I think that's right. I mean, I view I view post-war liberalism in large part as a transitory, unstable state uh, that was actually um, well pitched as an end of history. What it actually was was sort of this this ephemeral existence, which um, really its function was to de-Christianize the public square in America, uh, evacuate the public square of a prior substantive regnant ideology, civic religion, and then you know um, make room for a successor. And so that th- that would be the way I would view it. And you know there is this sort of nascent emerging successor religion, uh, civic religion that we um, perhaps have difficulty naming yet. Um, 
I'm, I'm sympathetic to, you know, understanding it to be some sort of relative or species of, of communism, but it's sort of a fanatical, a fanatical devotion to, um, using social engineering to achieve egalitarian outcomes. Uh, and, you know, and then there's, there's all the attendant, uh, uh, guilt and innocence that goes along with uh, various factions underneath that, and you know that often correlate with their demographics and such. But uh, but no, I, I think it's it's helpful to get all of that on the table. And then I think the the final thing I'll react to what you said there with respect to patronage, and and maybe more broadly about uh, other forms of real politics, uh, such as we might call them, is I do remain. Um, I remain impressed with our founders, uh, and not just our founders, but really the the people who founded our nation. Uh, and I, I use that intentionally not to speak of, you know, America falling out of the sky in 1776, but I mean the the founding stock who, uh, you know, came and carved out a home out of a out of a wilderness and you know did very impressive things. The 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 people of America as it existed in the 1700s were exceptionally virtuous. And I think we have to say there was an incredibly good run. I think there, there's something honorable as an ideal to having a political system where you actually, you know, where you actually have the ability to a large degree to suppress uh, the patronage instinct, right? And to um, suppress other forms of um, what you might call real politics. Um, you, you, uh, you have such a virtuous citizenry with that, that has a high degree of social trust and cohesion. Uh, and when you have those conditions, uh, you really can use, uh, you can use procedure that has high degrees of buy-in and trust in order to avoid the, the grosser things that often come along with politics. And so, you know, I think what, what I want to say is I want to recognize uh, what we had at that time as a tremendous achievement, like sort of a civilizational achievement um, but then also say, you know, wholeheartedly agree, given the current social conditions, um, just to have clear eyes, we must understand um, all of these dynamics are returning and they are understanding them and playing within them is sort of a precondition to being successful politically. Well, certainly, Josh. And there's something there that I want to get into, uh, which is you hear this a lot from, you know, conservative types. And I, and I really sympathize with what they mean when they say this, which is like, why is everything so political? Because, you know, I'm not an old man by any means, but I do remember, you know, the pre 2012, the pre great awakening atmosphere, you know, where things were not so politicized. And the reason that things are politicized is because anytime there is a controversy, there is an opportunity to rule. And if you were the regime, you can insert yourself into that controversy to decide, right, to make a decision. Uh, this is an idea that you sort of get from from Carl Schmitt. And so when you think of things like, let's just go over the last 70 years of, uh, so we say social change in the US, right? So we got rid of the, we got rid of Freedom Association. We, we have passed a lot of laws about how you're supposed to treat women. You have to offer them all these programs and schools. And, and you know, you can have different opinions on those. I'm not saying those are bad, but in each case that, that basically creates an opening for the state to say, I get to decide, you have to include my arbiter in the process of human interaction. And so that trend has continued and it sort of continued at a, like a parabolic rate into asymptotic. What do I mean? At a ever increasing rate up to the current time. And so every time, you know, something becomes politicized, it does become corrupted. Politics is a corrosive thing. I'm not saying that's good. Because, again, it's, it's, it's created a way for the state to increase its own power every time they get to make a decision on a controversy that previously was just assumed. So when you talk about the way that our ancestors lived, these founding stock Americans, don't get me wrong, Americans have always enjoyed vigorous politics, right? American political riots are kind of a story as old as the Republic. But at the same time, if you actually look at what is being discussed then, it's a relatively narrow band. And that's because those kind of baseline cultural assumptions were held in common. You know, if any if any person, you know, 200 years ago was in office saying, you know, like, I think we should castrate children, uh, he would not be long for this earth. 
I'll put it mildly. And so, you know, that growth and politicization of everything is really like it has made things objectively worse. And again, like I don't, I'm not happy that that is the case, but at the same time, pretending like it isn't, you know, pretending like we're still in a world where, you know, the vast majority of things are kind of assumed to be held in common. You're doing yourself a disservice by acting that, like the world is better than it is, if that makes sense, Josh. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two things that are happening there in my account. Like one, the quality of our, um, just the the civic virtue of our people has significantly degraded. So we've become more, a bit more like a third world country in that sense, where we've got um, we've got large factions of the population that don't have this tradition of um, of honoring and passing on uh, great traditions like the the jury trial and all of these other aspects of uh, kind of Anglo Protestant politics, right? Um, which all depend to varying degrees on a high degree of civic virtue. So there's that that's happening. But then at this at the same time, um, just the the substantive stakes of the politics have increasingly have have uh, have really increased. Uh, now we, yeah, I mean we 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 are literally dealing with political difference about whether or not we should conduct mass sexual experimentation on the nation's children and such. And so the. Um, the, the temperature is necessarily increased on that front. Uh, the, the things that we argue about now are the kinds of things that lead to violence, to national breakup and, and all the rest. Which, which so, is, if I can just jump in there, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, Josh, you're talking about the virtue of, you know, the founding stock, I, which I think, you know, is, is obviously true. The, the thing that I would – so when you have – this is kind of what you, you and Jay were talking about. When you have a sufficient degree of homogeneity, a certain level of liberality is is not only possible but desirable, right? And the way that you deal with each other and you're – because you have a shared way of life and you do politics in the in the very broad and classical sense of just figuring out what you're, what you're kind of doing. And, you know, it, it reduces your decision making and even your conflict to very rudimentary things that uh, don't rise to the level of, of challenging the shared way of life. The thing that I would that I usually critique the founders on, and I appreciate Josh that you're bringing in, uh, you know, the, the 400 full years of, of American history, not just the, the last 250 or so. Um, but the thing I would critique, you know, our constitutional order on um, at the at the founding, as most people understand it, is they didn't include sufficient mechanisms to ma- of maintenance for the de- the underlying degree of homogeneity, and that was began to be eroded almost immediately. Um, and once that is eroded, even if you you continue to have people that are what we might say are virtuous as, as you were, um, once once the shared life is already being eroded, you're moving inevitably to the the point that we found ourselves in. Now, I'm, I'm somewhat more critical of a lot of the post-liberal critiques than I was maybe a few years ago, and I get a little bit, you know, it, some of it's a little tiresome, but there, but this is something of a, a thesis of it's baked in the cake, not in the American character per se, but in the, in, to the extent that they didn't um, include ways that we could preserve that character sufficiently, in my view. And uh, the real kind of run, the, the good run you're talking about, really ends uh, with when the antebellum period ends, in my opinion. Um, so, it, yeah. so this is, you know, so we've arrived at this point. That's not only about the constitutional structure, but how it coincides with uh, the underlying, you know, assumptions and ways of life and, and conflict emerges very, very quickly, relatively speaking. Um, but now we, we are kind of, fully feeling it. I think prosperity um, cover provided cover for a lot of decadence and uh, heterogeneity and, uh, you know, difference for a long time. And those things mm-hmm. were fostered kind of under the surface without people noticing. Yeah. And for the, for the normies out there, I mean, the, the, the way to say this is essentially look at what John Jay in Federalist Number 2 thought was necessary in order to win the argument that we should have a federal constitution look at those social conditions that he thought were necessary. And essentially we didn't, you know, uh, didn't properly allow for, you know, take, take, take proper allowance of how that those social conditions must be maintained in order to maintain, 
the overall functioning. Yeah. So certainly there's a couple of things there that I want to get into, uh, which is one, the difference in how, how internal and external conflicts are, are settled, right? That traditionally in the West, and this goes back to kind of the Greeks and the Romans, there is a distinction between inter and outer group conflicts and kind of the nature of those. And, you know, I maintain that the politics and warfare are on the same spectrum. You know, they're the exercise of power and kind of the willingness to do violence is the same as the willingness to hold power. Right. And so, you know, when you look at how traditionally Europeans have fought intergroup conflicts, there were not wars of extermination, you know, like especially in the in the kind of pre-Napoleonic era, it was very much like, OK, we fight, you know, when one army breaks, we don't run them down. You know, we let them surrender. The general is, you know, ritually he gives his sword. The other general says, no, no, you can keep it. You know, you fought honorably. And then, you know, there is an exchange of territory, but there is not this kind of idea that that is a, a war of extermination. And, you know, admittedly, Europeans did not hold to the same standard of conduct when they were fighting people they considered kind of outside that. You know, the infamous example is of, of the pickle gun, right, which is an early kind of repeating cannon. And they had round shot for Christians and square shot, which was deemed to be, you know, more horrific for use on Turks. The idea that they're outside our civilization, we treat them worse. And so when you have a those kind of divisions brought into a polity, like it is one political organization with people who hate each other, who view each other as kind of like deep, kind of like lizard brain enemies. Like, of course, you're going to see things devolve to this level. And really, one of the worst things about you know, the war between the states is that we saw a total war brought onto our soil. You know, that it was a war of basically, you know, full destruction, like your, your society will be rebuilt. And so don't get me wrong. I think that that is, you know, something that we in the West have to own, but it is just kind of an interesting, interesting thing to point out. So the reason I bring up patronage is not only to describe kind of the relationship that our modern elites have to power, but also kind of something I want to institute into the evangelical mind. Because, you know, you've said that in a previous era, we'd always have at least a token evangelical. But one of the things that really frustrates me and the reason that I never got into Republican Party politics, even as a kid, is that, you know, evangelicals would basically do their part. You know, they would they would give these politicians their support. And what did they get in exchange? Effectively nothing. Like really, like evangelicals are in a significantly worse position than they were, you know, 30, 40 years ago, despite the fact that they have done their part of the deal. They showed up and voted. And part of that is that the patronage deal offered to evangelicals was a really bad deal. Like it was at best, mm. you know, we'll leave you alone. And the thing is, again, if one side says, you know, my my reward is that you'll get a bunch of free stuff and we'll punish your enemies. And the other side says, we'll leave you alone. Like it's a much better deal. And so it's sort of, it's not really rational to support the Republicans in the way that evangelicals have. I don't blame them for that. But I think that, you know, when we look at men like Trump, and I'm not a big Trump supporter, I've never voted for him. I've also never voted. So take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> what he basically did is he actually treated the evangelical base like a real political group. And so he offered them rewards. You know, he gave them Supreme Court justices that accomplished the things they wanted, like overturning Roe v. Wade. And so I think that's why the elites hate Trump so much, is that he's essentially going back to patronage politics in a way that Republicans, quote unquote, aren't supposed to do. And so I think that that's an interesting dynamic that as we see, you know, kind of the return of maybe a more honest form of politics, uh, there's a chance for us and ours to essentially get something out of politics for the first time in my life, your life, and probably our parents' lives. Right. Uh, no, I think that's that's very helpful. Um, you know, a lot of evangelicals, uh, I would say, um, hold a, a sentimentalist view of of this process, right? So that, that sort of patronage approach you're talking about, which I is just very basic, you know, political life we're returning to where, um, and part of that's because you're not in control anymore. So you don't have to pick at the litter and you don't, um, you know, you don't set the rules of the game anymore. 
Um, but a lot of evangelicals, of course, still, and I think this is a bit of a, a psyop that is encouraged by uh, the regime, you know, insist upon, and, and I say it's encouraged because you see um, outlets of the regime propaganda, you know, pushing it the hardest. So the New York Times, um, all the way down to quote unquote friendly publications like the Gospel Coalition, are probably right now writing pieces, you know, freaking out about Trump all over again, just recycling them from 2016 and telling everybody. Um, you know, he's he's morally unfit. And so th that's what I mean by the the regime pushing this sentimentalist analysis out of evangelicals so that they ignore the patronage arrangement and the real um, modes and means of success um, from their perspective. Not only do they not have a class consciousness, we might say, um, but they ignore the means of producing anything for that class for their own interests because they're wrapped up in this infinite kind of moral um, purity spiral, uh, which, which obviously no one can actually fulfill, but you know, there's, uh, the, a lot of e evangelicals would like Mike Pence and not like Trump because, you know, Pence seems to be more pristine and more appears more evangelical, but they never get to the point of asking whether, you know, he's, he would or did actually do anything for evangelicals, whereas Trump might fulfill the, uh, you know, the more patronage model you're talking about, but that's very difficult a difficult rut for a lot of evangelicals to get out of. Well, certainly. And I think that we also have to remember that, you know, our regime is incredibly cynical and they're incredibly cynical about our values. So you've seen this with, you know, with Ukraine, you've seen this with every time they sort of want to, you know, get uh, you know, conservative white guys to sign up for a war is that the exact same people who two or three years ago you know, we're basically saying, you know, America, you know, spelled America with three K's, you know, it's a racist, horrible country are now basically playing, you know, playing marches saying rah, 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 the flag when it's in their interest. And don't get me wrong, like patriotism is a good instinct. You know, the instinct that you want your leaders to be wise and august is good. You know, like we like to be honest, like I, I it would be better if that were the case. But, you know, we have to remember that not only do they not share our values? You know, they're doing that tactically. Uh, well, but also that's not the choice we're given. You know, we're not in a world of good choices. And so we're essentially one, like I said, going back to you know, Dreyer's point about we're playing a different game. And so we have to sort of play tactically because there are real things on the line here. Like I've said before that that I'm in, in Virginia and Youngkin is not my... I probably wouldn't be friends with him. He doesn't seem like the best guy in the world. But the fact is he's managed to do real work. Like he had a he had a porn ban. He's he's really clamped down on the gender stuff. He's done good work. And has he done everything that I've wanted? Certainly not. But my life is materially better. You know, the conditions for me as a Christian are materially better because of what he's done. He kind of he kind of held up his end of the bargain. And so, well, that's why that's how politicians get loyalty. Right, you've done something for me. I'll I'll show up, and again, you know, so many people have taken advantage of what I consider to be kind of the moral heart of the nation, and given them absolutely nothing in return for it. And to me, it's like, again, like, sure, it would be great if we could return to that kind of like older model of you know, wise august statesmen giving policy speeches, you know, debating each other. But that's not the situation we're in. And so you don't do yourself any favors by acting as if we're still working under Robert's rules. And uh, again, I think that I say that not to not in a punitive way. You know, when I talk to, you know, my people, you know, these kind of like American evangelicals, but because they deserve better, you know, they deserve to get something for their support. They deserve to have their concerns addressed because for far too long, they've essentially been used like a piggy bank by the RNC. You're like, oh, just give me money. You know, well, do what you, you know, I'll, I'll mouth some empty platitudes, you know, and just assume that you're going to bankroll my entire career. And uh, that's, to be honest, it's completely unfair. Uh, that's, that's, that was awesome. Um, <clears throat> Glad's uh, timing. We need to bottle that up and sell that. Um, so, <laughs> so, um, sort of a related point, you know, we, time and you mentioned Mike Pence and Mike Pence was sort of the stand in. We all knew, you know, Trump, Trump picked Pence as his VP in 2016 because Pence was, um, 
you know, he was the guy that was going to get the evangelicals comfortable with Trump. Um, and maybe, <clears throat> maybe it did that, but let's not forget Mike Pence, who is sort of famously an evangelical, just rolled over in Indiana on a RIFRA bill. Uh, I think it was mm -hmm. in 2015 when the Chamber mm -hmm. of Commerce rattled their sabers a little bit. Um, and again, mm -hmm. that was, you know, it, it just, just going back to this idea of the GOP betraying evangelicals time and time again, that's, an, that's a great example. And, and evangelicals are, they've been far too forgiving. The thing that they'll forgive the fastest is weakness and cowardice. You know, that's not a, that weakness and cowardice in leaders to the evangelical is a forgivable sin. It's something that you can be redeemed from. Um, but talking a little bit too harshly about, um, you know, illegal immigrants is, is an irredeemable sin to the evangelical. And so, you know, there's maybe, you know, we could get into some of the complex reasons for why that is, but, um, you know, that's certainly been, been the case. Uh, and, you know, I think that, you know, more broadly, I think what we really need evangelicals to recognize is that federal politics is something that's happening in um, what you might call, it's, it's, it's happening in a political situation that's a lot closer to a state of nature. Um, in other words, we, when we pick somebody uh, to be our presidential candidate or whatever, we're picking somebody who um, probably to be effective needs to be viewing all of the federal politics as sort of uh, Machiavellian power struggles rather than, um, you know, picking a custodian of the constitutional order or something like that, which is, I think, our current framework. Right. No, and you see that. Oh, sorry. go ahead, Jay. No, no, no sir, time and you go. Um, no, I was just piggybacking off of what Josh was saying, and this will keep teeing it up. I mean, so the uh, that that concept of the custodian of the constitutional order, I mean, uh, so many evangelical backed um, politicians and I always think of Ted Cruz on this um, get by with that kind of shtick. Right. They, they're the they're the constitutionalists. You hear a lot. I mean, Mike Lee similarly identifies. They'll say that about themselves. And what that enables them to do is, you know, they get to do uh, 24 hour filibusters and and still lose and then go home and tell their constituency that they fight the good fight. But, you know, everyone's against them. And so this is the best they can hope for. And people elect them again. Right. Because that's their posture. It's not to actually get anything done because they don't have a. Uh, sufficient political outlook um, in the in the vein that Josh was talking about. Um, so we we they get you know weakness and cowardice are forgiven, but so is inactivity uh, under again a sort of sentimentalist view that you know it's the Constitution Constitution. Um, I'm just going to maintain the structure on principle, and I I would never you know violate the norms or you know whatever we want to say. Just to, and at the same time, their opponents, our opponents, uh, you know. I wouldn't even say they violate the norms; they construct the norms, uh, you know, in real time, um, which is which is the equivalent of having real power. So, uh, but Jay, go ahead. That was just piggybacking off of Josh. Well, I think that that's that is really the definition of real power and cultural power is getting to set the baseline, the the null hypothesis. And I think one of the problems we have with RNC types and an evangelical elites is that our enemies control like the apparatus of prestige. Right. Our enemies set what it means to be, quote unquote, educated, reasonable, all of these things. And so, you know, so many elites get pulled by that sway. You know, the desire to do pro-social things, the desire to be well-esteemed is actually a, a generally a positive one. You know, I, I think of this, that there's a there's a statue now. Admittedly, it's in the ghetto, but it was once a nice neighborhood in my town of a man who midway through his career left, ceased being a doctor and opened a free hospital, right? And so he has a statue in his honor in the middle of town. And so that's a pro-social thing. And he was given esteem in exchange for that. Now that's normally a very good thing, right? You've got a free hospital out of it. But in our modern era, right? When our elites are, are evil and backwards, they still have that ability to set what it means to be high status, what it means to be prestigious. And so so often that is used as a way to control the quote unquote good conservatives, the quote unquote good Christians. 
you, know, you see this with figures like David French, right? That he has been so fully pulled along by the nose that despite the fact that he describes himself as a conservative Christian, he's literally just a Democrat. Like by he's a progressive Democrat by all objective means. And the reason he's been pulled along is by that that kind of prestige trap. And so so many people who say, you know what, I hate I hate the regime, I hate the structure of power, I, you know, I don't believe in anything that they stand for, still follow that pull, that pull of prestige, because they don't want to seem to be backwards. They don't want to seem to be stupid. And one of the things that you have to give up if you're serious about being a dissident, if you're serious about not, you know, bowing before the idol, is that you have to realize that if you do that, you are not going to be seen as high status. You can't both defy the regime and get rewards from them. And that's one of those things that a lot of people say, you know, evangelicals have spent a lot of time thinking about like, oh, you know, what if the communists take over and I'm martyred for my faith? And they talk about that a lot, but they are unwilling to make a social sacrifice to be seen as as lame or uncool or kind of retrograde. And it's incredibly frustrating because you see this all the time, you know, these kind of ex-evangelical types, you know, who have basically fully deconstructed, who have fully embraced kind of like radical racial politics because that is high status. And they're so desperate to be seen as cool, so desperate to be seen as kind of winsome, you know, to use an evangelical term that they're willing to sacrifice everything on that altar. And so to be honest, it comes down to this idea of like, well, what is your ultimate principle? And is your ultimate principle my relationship to my creator, my relationship to this kind of hierarchy of being? Or is it I want to be seen as a good person? And uh, I think you're seeing that as we see the divergence on civic religion, as this kind of like new syncretic faith is born, you're seeing who is you know, who is a status seeker first and who is a Christian first. Right. Yeah. And what, I mean, this question of evangelicals sort of uh, kowtowing to, to preexisting status hierarchies or prestige, as you put it, I mean, is, is a significant problem um, that that just exposes, you know, our lack of self-confidence, you know, with, with Trump going back to just make this all about Trump, but uh, here we are. So, I mean, you know, Warren G. Harding, Harding was a very similar candidate. He was a coup in the in the national convention, the Republican convention. He was a womanizer. He had no you know discernible serious record. Seems like he spent all his time in Washington just playing around. Um, but there he was because he was willing to um, and sort of inserted willing to enforce um, you know in the twenties Protestant moral and cultural norms over and against you know the sort of Wilsonian revolution. The problem was you know everything was already trending in the opposite direction and the cool status the prestige status had already shifted and you know harding kind of disrupted this this um momentarily you know emergence is the Demo- of the democratic party of of the liberals as as predominant as predominant cultural setters and uh also just in 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 charge of you know the the real level levers of power um and so, you know, one problem there I see, you know, being repeated in a certain way, even if we adopt a better mindset about how the regime actually operates, is, you know, this lack of self-confidence to where we're, instead of asserting a positive vision, you know, we just want a seat at the table again. We don't want to steal the table. We don't want to build a table. We want a seat at the table because it's what's cool. And, and we're always kind of on our back foot and being reactive. And this is a, a real danger even for the dissident right to, you know, constantly um, amuse ourselves being reactive and critiquing, as you were saying. We don't want to lose the radical critique, but it's much more difficult to assert a positive vision that's compelling and to um, do what you were saying. I mean, just totally ignore the pre-existing status hierarchies and build new ones. So certainly there's there's a lot there. So you know we've talked about we've talked about the fact that the the west at large americans in particular have you know become decadent have become victims of their own success you know when you mentioned the the moment at which conservative christians were kind of pushed out of power about 100 110 years ago and so this is a moment known by two names it's either called the modernist crisis or the great betrayal and that was the moment at which you know traditional American WASP elites turned their back on Christianity, and it's where it's the genesis of 
the split between mainline and evangelical Protestants. And you know, really part of the reason that I think that there's so much, I'm just going to say this rampant stupidity in evangelical circles mm-hmm. uh, on certain issues is the fact that they were sort of decapitated as a group. You know, that you have a group of people who have had to sort of build a culture artificially. Because normally, right, in any group, there's an elite class, there's a middle class, and then there's, you know, kind of like the lower class. And that's fine. That's just sort of the natural way that humans organize themselves. But when you have a, you know, a a group of people who are very devout, you know, are very serious about their faith, but have lost not only their elite, but have lost all of their institutions. Like, don't get, don't don't forget that Princeton was a seminary. You know, Harvard had a real, you know, school of divinity for quite some time. You know, these elite institutions were very Christian. All of a sudden that goes away and you're sort of left trying to build something backwards. And so I don't necessarily blame them for that. But in that, you can understand the kind of like loss of one. They were sort of kicked out of the tape, kicked off the table. You know, they're forcibly removed. But also it's sort of a mismatch. I think this is why evangelicals are so desperate to, to glom on to people like Peterson because Peterson is effectively like missing some certain signifiers, uh, an evangelical elite, you know, will kind of like substitute him in that space, maybe a discussion for another time. But we talk about regaining that confidence. And if you look at, if you look at scripture, if you look at classical history, they view history as cyclical. There's essentially a rise, a peak, and then a fall of civilization and culture. And, you know, when that decadence sets in, you know, when that, that kind of like lack of self-confidence sets in. You know, you don't believe that you have that will to power, that right to power, that willingness to suffer on behalf of your beliefs. Well, you can get that back, but you sort of have to pay for it. You know, mm-hmm. Demestra, who's a, a French political philosopher I quite like, talks about this, where he says that, you know, in the same way that, you know, in biblical times, you were, expect, you were expected to give up a sacrifice, right? You had to give up the first fruits of the harvest. You had to give up, you know, a, a newborn lamb. You had to give up effectively blood to be purified. The same thing happens on a national scale. Like you have to suffer. And mm. so I actually think it's a good thing that evangelicals are being exposed to shame, ridicule, and persecution. The Canadians are a little bit ahead on, of us on this, but it's, it's coming here too, because that's the way that you, you, you regain Asabaya or that kind of like in-group mm. preference, that thing that says like, we are a group, we are confident in that, is through shared suffering. And so, you know, when I look ahead to that, I don't see that as a bad thing. Like, certainly, I'd rather live in an era of mass cultural Christianity, you know, where we have, you know, we've, we hold all the cards, right? I would prefer that. But when I look ahead towards, you know, a future in which, at least on the short term, things don't look to be in our favor, to be honest, I think that's the medicine we need, you know, because like, look, like I love American, like I go to American evangelical church. These are my people. They're my family. But let's be honest there's a lot of decadence there and there's a lot of decadence there that just like dross needs to be burnt out. And so I think that that is, is coming for us, whether we want it or not. And uh, it's probably best to, to take our medicine, you know, like a man. Mm. <laughs> yeah, in- indeed. Um, so, I mean, I mean, it is, and I think evangelicals, even as they're listening to what you're saying, need to also realize, you know, one of the, that the, the regime recognizes uh we can just this is how they always refer to it white evangelicals right they recognize the group um it's just that the group has either insufficient or none at all you know of, of its own group consciousness where it operates that way um and this is kind of what you're what you're talking about because everything cuts against it and that's for for a reason and that's why you see when it does operate as a group even if it's not in a particularly interesting way, you know, much was made of 80% of white evangelicals voting for Trump. It's like, well, they just voted Republican. That's what they always do, um, which gets back to some of the issues you were already talking about. But the point is when they do operate as a group, it is uh, denounced as bad um, and it, it further erodes any sense of, you know, group identity, even as everything else is operating on those terms. So we really just need to catch up in a certain way. It's not an excuse for being you know, nasty or, or whatever. Um, but it is, a, it is necessary and, uh, and inevitable. I mean, you either, you either think like the group that you're in or, you know, you're, you're kind of at sea. Um, but what I hear you saying in many ways is it's, it's probably going to get worse and it needs to get worse. Um, in a sort of, uh, I guess we could call this an accelerationist point, uh, not in the same way. Maybe everyone uses that term. Um, 
you know, you're not necessarily longing for sort of, you know, real tribal warfare or something, but it does need to get worse um, before it seems before evangelicals, you know, will continue to wake up and then really develop their, uh, their atrophied political muscles. Well, well, certainly both on a political and a, and a spiritual sense, right? Like when we, we look at the Old Testament, you know, we look at how the people of Israel related to God. Well, what do we see over and over again? Right. They sort of let their their eyes be clouded by idols. You know, they, they become decadent and then they're subject to persecution. You know, uh, God sends the Assyrians in. God sends the, you know, the Philistines in. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, once they they suffer, they they return to God and they're rewarded. And I think that that is, there's both a spiritual truth to that and a kind of a, a political one. You know, I don't really view politics, religion as separate buckets. You know, that's mm-hmm. something that I believe is a, is a misconception, you know, of the enlightenment. And I think that the, you know, there's a reason that when we were a confident culture, we were a culture that could kind of unashamedly and unironically believe in God. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the difficult things about modernity. One of my good friends, academic agent, has this term for, you know, people in our age, which he calls them children of the ashes. Mm-hmm. And what he means by that is essentially like we've we've been born into a culture that's been dead. You know, I, I never mm-hmm. knew a culture that was kind of unironic. And so, you know, when it comes to believing in God, that's a very different thing for you and I than it would have been for someone 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we have a different relationship to belief and kind of the whole idea that you can decide your religion, you know, you can decide to believe in God or not. You know, that's sort of a, a lifestyle choice is a relatively new one and kind of a weird one. And so, again, that goes back to the the idea of a null hypothesis, the baseline. And so I, I think that. I think that until that kind of returns you know, you're not going to see this kind of like mass resurgence. And I don't think you see a mass resurgence without a, a change in material circumstances, I guess. I could mm-hmm. be wrong. I'd actually like to be wrong. You know, mm-hmm. if I'm incorrect, great. You know, but uh, I do think that, you know, America is not unique. You know, we operate under the same constraints that every other group of humans that ever lived has. And I think that we will be subject to the same trends and forces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, which is something that I kind of bang on about often is, you know, evangelical Protestants. I like to just talk about Protestantism, but you know, even everyone knows what evangelicals uh, what it refers to. Um, but the, we've court, sort of operated, which is again, it's it's um, induced by um, you know the current regime certainly, but it, it's kind of baked in um, a little bit into uh, you know Enlightenment America, we might say. But it's this bifurcation of life, right? So, so the split of, of body and soul only happens at death, you know, to humans. Um, and the same is true for for our collective enterprises, for for our societies. And so, when you when you begin to bifurcate the body and the soul, the material and immaterial, um, it, the you know, I, I would agree with you that religion and politics aren't aren't really separated. But as we pretend that they can be, it really is death. That's that's all that comes from that. And so you talking about, you know, being in a sort of dead culture, dead society uh, makes perfect sense. And that's why it's, of course, decadent. There's no it's no longer a truly intellectual, we might say, a truly soulful um, existence for us. Um, And this comes in part, but, you know, it kind of began with uh, a posture of indifference towards what is usually called public religion. And this is something I mean, Jefferson, uh, you know, self-professedly wanted to foster, you know, to get away from sort of sectarian uh, squabbles. And so the, what you do to religion to get it out of public life is you take an indifferent posture towards it and it will die. If it doesn't matter, then it's, it becomes irrelevant. Um, So I think, you know, a lot of what's going on in evangelical circles now is a sort of incubation period of trying to recover, you know, what's usually called political theology, the way to think about these things. And they just haven't done that for so long in a serious um, way that's in touch with their traditions, that's confessionally uh, moored, you know, this sort of, they're just not used to it. And so you see all kinds of um, hysteria surrounding very uh, innocuous proposals like Christian nationalism. Now, the, the term is provocative, but most of the ideas swirling around would have been completely commonplace 300 years ago. 
um, for Protestants. Well, I mean, not even not not crazy. even three hundred years ago, uh, ninety years ago. Ninety, you know, sure, like, it, it, it's, sure. It's to me, it's, and I don't want to get off on this because I like, I am not personally a Christian nationalist, but I like a lot of those guys. Like I have Andrew mm-hmm. Isker on my podcast quite often, and I mm-hmm. consider him a personal friend. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, it's it's become, and, and there's a great. Rothbard essay from the seventies on this. And look, Hmm. Rothbard was an atheist Jew. Uh, Like he had no affinity whatsoever for American evangelicals. Right. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that I kind of like Rothbard, you know, I I kind of went through a libertarian phase Mm -hmm. and he has this article and I think it was 76 or 86. I can't remember. I'll, I'll, uh, I cannot remember the name of it, but it's easy enough to find in the libertarian Institute or Mises uh, where he basically talks about, he talks about what would have been the moral majority in Jerry Falwell at the time. And he's going through it and he basically says, and admittedly, this is what now 40 years ago, that look like this, this idea that, you know, there's this like right-wing fascist Christian movement waiting in the wings is absurd. Like this is just how politics was done within, Mm -hmm. you know, in the eighties within living memory. Mm -hmm. And so like, don't get, don't get duped by this playbook. They've been doing this Mm -hmm. playbook over and over and over again with slightly altered verbiage. Mm-hmm. for essentially three generations. And it's basically the, it, you just don't listen to a single thing they say and just substitute, we don't like Christians and we want them to lose. And that is effectively mm-hmm. that entire argument. So I just d- mm-hmm. dismiss it out of hand. Sorry. Anyway, Timon, back to you. No, no, in, indeed. No, I think that's that's completely right. Um, that's why, you know- Wait, I, I want to correct myself. I, I mispronounced your name. Time oh, I, see, I, I, I don't even notice. Like I said before, um, it's, it's so frequent. Um, when I go to Starbucks, I just have to give a, like a fake name so that no one has to wrestle with it. Um, so you, anyway, so you don't get dead named when you order coffee. I don't get dead named. No. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah. We can talk about yeah, something yeah. real. No, no. That's, uh, there's nothing more real than that. Uh, Starbucks is like a microcosm of of the American experience at this point. Um, anyway, the yes, the uh, you know this sort of not getting not getting duped by the the t- typical rhetorical moves that that come out i think is a, is a great you know word of advice to evangelicals as a, as a sort of starting point you know to not um to question the the narrative and to question the rhetoric that uh you know comes your way and not um not really give it any any notice at all anymore um is one way to start becoming uh anti-fragile and to and, and politically assertive um, and to to look to your own tradition and your own um, you know your own communities and what their what their needs are and, and I think this is very difficult for a lot of people also to to become comfortable with because so much of I guess we can just say the media um, insists that you really care and and exert all your political energy into everything federal right this is where the action's at this is what's important all the while um, the left is is very skilled at uh, and interested in uh, the the local context, you know, the school boards, the the town councils, these sorts of things, because they know they do matter. And I think, in some ways, at least in certain evangelical circles, they are beginning to recognize that there's much um, winning, we might say, that can be had at um, smaller, you know, more subsidiary levels. Um, and that begins, of course, with church and, and community, but there, there's places to begin to build. We just have to avail ourselves of them. Um, but you have to get away from, um, you know, sort of fixation on uh, the games and the bread, the circus, and, uh, you know, look at where you can can make moves. And then in those contexts, be assertive and not worry about uh, the, the rhetoric that comes back at you that's designed for you to fail. No, certainly. And uh, again, that's maybe the probably a good summation of everything that I've spoken of, you know, and and the reason I, I am a little bit harsh on, you know, red staters, American conservative evangelicals, I don't do it because I dislike them far from it. You know, I, I view, you know, our people as kind of the best that America has to offer. Mm-hmm. But that being said, they're playing the game badly. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the amount of good they can do for themselves and for others is kind of handicapped by that. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's important to, to look at these things honestly, right? To be, you know, to be wise as snakes, I guess, is, is my point in all of this. Mm. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. We are coming up on, on time here. I appreciate you 
uh, sticking with us and coming on. Uh, Jay, just remind everybody again, um, in case they missed it at the beginning, where they can find your work, um, you know, your, your podcast, so on and so forth, so they can um, you know, keep engaging in these discussions with you. Yeah, certainly. And again, thank you so much for having me on because 90% of my work, The Jay Burden Show, is an interview show. I very rarely get to kind of opine at length about what mm. I think. And so I always appreciate the chance to do so. I, I do appreciate you, you giving me your time. Uh, you can find me, like I said, on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can find me on YouTube. If, you, if you're making a choice, I prefer you go to audio. Uh, YouTube is a terrible company and I hate them, <laughs> but I am nonetheless kind of bound to their platform. I'm also on Substack. I write essays there. I think they are getting better every time I write. So you can find me at the Jay Burden Show on Substack, YouTube, uh, Apple, Spotify, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And uh, yeah, Timon, thank you so much. I, I really do appreciate this. Well, and to, and to be clear for people listening, if they're not looking at the uh, their app right now, it's J as in the initial J. Uh, you know, with a period and then burden, B-U-R-D-E-N. Um, so go check that out. And also a good Twitter follow. Um, I don't remember what your handle is uh, for, for Twitter. Is oh, just- yeah. I actually almost never say that, uh, but I am at underscore J burden, no period. Uh, okay. I, I, I'll put it this way. I have fun on Twitter, but my serious work is elsewhere. You know, don't go there uh, <laughs> expecting the same quality of, uh, of seriousness. That and that, kind of uh, that is exactly the right way to use Twitter. Um, Jay, thanks again for coming on. This was great. Um, we'll have to have you on again sometime. Um, I, again, I follow your your podcasts and uh, they're always fun. You do have good guests and, and interact with them well. Um, so everyone go check that out and uh, join us again next week. Um, on the podcast, we'll have another another great guest. Uh, follow us on Twitter um, at amreformer. Uh, go subscribe to the site americanreformer.org, um, where you can look at our daily essays that we have coming out. And uh, until next time, have a good one. You can find American Reformer on the internet at www.americanreformer.org or on x.com, formerly Twitter, at AM Reform. Don't forget to like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Please consider supporting us today by making a tax-deductible donation through our secure online donation portal at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org.